Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is our 36th episode. The issue, saving the nation from Trump. Stay tuned. We are finally at that point when we will know who is our next president. Perhaps two days away on Tuesday, November the 3rd, or a day or days later. But we shall finally know. The election fundamentals favor Biden. More dollars in the bank and on the air and ads. A team of lawyers to defend election results. Polls favoring Biden. A virus that people trust Biden will handle. Increasing support among over 65-year-olds. Suburban women help him, and white males as well. A man of civil demeanor, of measured and appropriate anger, fighting for democratic values. A pledge that he will be the president for all the people. A vice presidential choice who will be a full partner. A resume of public service for over 50 years. No scandal the trolls and rogue Rudy could make stick, though they tried. No third-party candidate to soak up votes like in 2016. The support of Republicans who seek to restore normalcy to the Republic support Biden and have a chance down the road at their brand of a more traditional conservatism. By contrast, it must be a mystery to Americans of all parties how anyone could prefer Trump, a self-serving bully, dumb to science, defying the law and constitution, usurping the House and the Senate and packing the courts, a man impeached for an unlawful attempt to slander Biden, wound his candidacy with a bogus, underhanded deal with Ukraine, as Trump knew Biden was the one the one candidate who could beat him like a drum in a presidential election. There's an old saying not to trust a general who doesn't know how to dance. But what about a man who puts children in cages? What about a man who runs down our men and women in the military service? Suckers, he said. We've seen Trump say former Senator McCain was no hero, having spent years as a prisoner of war. A man without sympathy for anyone biased against immigrants, persons of color, women, persons with disabilities, anyone who tells the truth about Trump's misconduct, sensitive about any affront to his over-expanding narcissistic ego, demanding loyalty, fealty even, that he never returns himself, insisting on a pliable, compliant, malleable Republican Senate to defer to his fiats, a packer of courts with judges of inferior legal minds and unethical demeanor who will compromise judicial trust for decades to come. A man amoral to the core. A man-child preferring the pose of an autocrat, though he's closer to a third-rate organized crime figure. The man who would be king, monarchical, destructive of our democracy, and our representative form of government. He spends his time replacing sound practices with his uninformed and ignorant impulses on major policy concerns, domestic and foreign. A liar to the core, absorbed with vanity. A reality TV star faking the real job that is hard to do.
His go-to when caught, denial, anger, attack, and lies. It's high time he got the heave-ho. Stay tuned. With Trump, we have looked into our near future and considered how terrible it may be in the short term, denying us all hope for a better future. A hellscape spreads out before us. On one level, our republic is at risk. On another, our lives are at risk for the failure of this president, so-called, to handle the virus. Those who are listening already know this. We know we must rid ourselves of Trump and expect we shall this Tuesday. I won't repeat what we've already discussed here and and uh, walk-in talks, but in recent days, a Stanford study demonstrated that Trump has caused 30,000 of his supporters to be infected at 18 of his Hitler rallies, and following those infections, there were 700 deaths. Trump complains that everyone wants to talk about COVID like it's nothing. There are at least 25,000 people who wanted to be here tonight. They were here for a long time. They waited and waited, and then the governor did bad things. It's a pandemic, and you're doing good. It's always cases are up, and people go crazy, you know. Now it's uh, you live with it, and you have, uh, and you know what to do. We understand it now. You got to understand it, but we're making that beautiful turn. You know, our doctors get more money if somebody dies from COVID. That's true. It's like $2,000 more, so you get more money. Biden has made it clear that it is something and that he would look at it very differently. Donald Trump has waved the white flag, abandoned our families, and surrendered to this virus. But the American people never give up. We never give in, and we surely don't cower, and neither will I. Donald Trump just had a super spreader event here again. They're spending more, more than just coronavirus. He's spreading division and discord. We need a president who's going to bring us together, not pull us apart. Donald Trump refuses to listen to science. And we shouldn't be politicizing the race for a vaccine. We should be planning for its safe use and free and equitable distribution, providing PPE for national standards for schools, businesses to open safely. I've said it before, I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm not going to shut down the country. I'm going to shut down the virus. Fauci explains in as dispassionate a way as he can how we are headed for disaster if we don't figure out how to get this virus right. I have been urgently saying every single day that we have got to do things that have not been done uniformly and consistently throughout the country. The numbers that you put up are stunning. This is going to get worse because we're going more into a colder season as we get through the fall and into the winter with the holiday season going. We've got to do something different. We can't just let this happen. We're going to have many more hospitalizations and that will inevitably lead to more deaths. So this is an untenable situation. And that's the reason why I say we have got to do these things. You're using the word mandating masks. Yes, if that works, let's do it. I don't. If things do not change, Shep, if they continue on the course we're on, there's going to be a whole lot of pain in this country with regard to additional cases 
and hospitalizations and deaths. We are on a very difficult trajectory. We are going in the wrong direction. We're averaging 70,000 cases per week. We've gone up as high as 83,000 last Friday. And if you look at the map that you just showed on the screen, there are a large number of, case of states that are going in the wrong direction. If that continues, we're going to be in much worse shape a month from now than we are today. There's a wonderful book written years ago titled Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed by Jared Diamond. More than 500 pages of brilliant insights that take you to places that failed and why, and how these failures are all the same and all are different. Jared is brilliant. I don't offer him so much to persuade you of anything, since if you're listening to me, we're already thinking in the same neighborhood. But Jared finds how a combination of factors overwhelm a society and they fail. But he also addresses the question, like with the pandemic, why wouldn't Trump address the pandemic directly? And I think Jared has a good answer for that question. Stay tuned. Jared's basically written about how societies choose to fail or to succeed. He looks to environmental changes, but environmental is a broader term for Jared. It's climate change, but it's also hostile neighbors, trade partners, and how society responds to these challenges. This administration has made it its business to ignore climate change, so we're not signatories to the Paris Accord. We talk about sweeping forests to rid ourselves of forest fires. We mine where we should not and ravage our lands and our waterways. Who are our friendly neighbors? Mexico? Who in Europe truly trust us? What can be said about our dependence on Russia? Our trade wars have done what to our partners in trade? Our society has suffered for these policies, all protestations to the contrary notwithstanding. Mr. Diamond takes us through several historical societies that failed and analyze how it happened in each case. Yes, I'm saying this because Trump is our near miss by the standards that Diamond outlined, and hopefully will survive more of the same at the ballot box and begin to repair and restore the republic that Trump has put at risk. We just won't be able to ignore the conditions Trump created that continue to put us at risk. Some societies are more fragile than others. Are we among those? Some have already collapsed. Some are close to collapse. What can we learn from other societies? There's not a single factor. Diamond reviews his five-point framework historically. Now, review what he said about Norse. Listen. If anyone tells you that there's a single factor explanation for societal collapses, you know right away that they're an idiot. This is a complex subject, but how can we make sense out of the complexities of this subject? In analyzing societal collapses, I've arrived at a five-point framework a checklist of things that I go through in trying to understand collapses. And I'll illustrate that five-point framework by the extinction of the Greenland Norse Society, 
This is a European society with literate records, so we know a good deal about the people and their motivation. In AD 984, Vikings went out to Greenland, settled Greenland, and around 1450, they died out. The society collapsed, and every one of them ended up dead. Why did they all end up dead? Well, in my five-point framework, the first item on the framework is to look for human impacts on the environment, people inadvertently destroying the resource base on which they depend, and in the case of the Viking Norse, the Vikings inadvertently caused soil erosion and deforestation, which was a particular problem for them because they required forests to make charcoal, to make iron, so they ended up an Iron Age European society virtually unable to make their own iron. A second item on my checklist is climate change. Climate can get warmer or colder or drier or wetter. In the case of the Vikings in Greenland, the climate got colder in the late 1300s and especially in the 1400s. But a cold climate isn't isn't necessarily fatal because the Inuit, the Eskimos, inhabiting Greenland at the same time did better rather than worse with cold climate. So why didn't the Greenland Norse as well? The third thing on my checklist is relations with neighboring friendly societies that may prop up a society. And if that friendly support is pulled away, that may make a society more likely to collapse. In the case of the Greenland Norse, they had trade with the mother country, with Norway, and that trade dwindled, partly because Norway got weaker, partly because of sea ice between Greenland and Norway. The fourth item on my checklist is relations with hostile societies. In the case of Norse Greenland, the hostiles were the Inuit, the Eskimos, sharing Greenland with whom the Norse got off to bad relationships, and we know that the Inuit killed Norse, and probably of greater importance, may have blocked access to the outer fjords on which the Norse depended for seals at a critical time of the year. And then finally, the fifth item on my checklist is the political, economic, social, and cultural factors in the society that make it more or less likely that society will perceive and solve its environmental problems. In the case of the Greenland Norse, factors cultural factors that made it difficult for them to solve their problems were their commitments to a Christian society investing heavily in cathedrals, their being a competitive, ranked, chiefly society, and their scorn from the Inuit, for the Inuit, from whom they refused to learn. So that's how the five-part framework is relevant to the collapse and eventual extinction of the Greenland Norse. He also makes a review of Montana, closer to home. Listen to that analysis so you can see how it applies to us nationwide. For the past five years, I've been taking my wife and kids to southwestern Montana, where I worked as a teenager on the hay harvest. And Montana, at first sight, seems like the most pristine environment in the United States, but scratch the surface, and Montana suffers from serious problems. Going through the same checklist, human environmental impacts, yes, acute in Montana, Toxic problems from mine waste have caused damage of billions of dollars. Problems from weeds, weed control, cost Montana nearly $200 million a year. Montana's lost agricultural areas from salinization, problems of forest management, problems of forest fires. Second item on my checklist, 
climate change, yes, the climate in Montana is getting warmer and drier, but Montana agriculture depends especially on irrigation from the snowpack, and as the snow is melting, for example, as the glaciers in Glacier National Park are disappearing, that's bad news for Montana irrigation agriculture. Third thing on my checklist, relations with friendlies that can sustain the society. In Montana today, more than half of the income of Montana is not earned within Montana, but it's derived from out-of-state transfer payments from Social Security, investments, and so on, which makes Montana vulnerable to the rest of the United States. Fourth, relations with hostiles. Montanans have the same problems as do all Americans in being sensitive to problems created by hostiles overseas, affecting our oil supplies and terrorist attacks. And finally, last item on my checklist, question of how political, economic, social, cultural attitudes play into this. Montanans have long-held values, which today seem to be getting in the way of their solving their own problems. Long-held devotion to logging and to mines and to agriculture and to no government regulation values that work well in the past, but that don't seem to be working well today. Every collapsed society has its own details. It can come quickly. Consider the collapse of the Soviet Union. The question that bugs Diamond is how did these societies not see what they were doing that would cause their collapse, and how exactly did they fail to perceive their problem? How did they fail to see what their impact would be on their civilization? And his answer is, at least one of them, is that there's a conflict of interest between the elite and the citizens. And this makes a lot of sense in this United States and in this administration. Listen. What really bugs my UCLA undergraduate students is, how on earth did these societies not see what they were doing? How could the Easter Islanders have deforested their environment? What did they say when they were cutting down the last palm tree? Didn't they see what they were doing? How could societies not perceive the impacts on the environments and stop in time? And I would expect that if our, if human, human civilization carries on, then maybe in the next century, people will be asking, why on earth did these people today in the year 2003 not see the obvious things that they were doing and take corrective action. It seems incredible in the past, in the future it'll seem incredible what we are doing today. And so I've been trying to develop a hierarchical set of considerations about why societies fail to solve their problems, why they fail to perceive the problems, or if they perceive them, why they fail to tackle them, or if they fail to tackle them, why they fail to succeed in solving them. I'll just mention two generalizations in this area. One blueprint for trouble, making collapse likely, is where there's a conflict of interest between the short-term interests of the decision-making elites and the long-term interests of the society as a whole, especially if the elites are able to insulate themselves from the consequences of their actions. Where what's good in the short run for the elite is bad for the society as a whole, there's a real risk of the elite doing things that will bring the society down in the long run. Good for them, the elites, but bad for society as a whole. Good to go to work today, bad for those who go to work now and catch the virus. It's hard for a society to make good decisions when there are values that work in some circumstances, but not in other circumstances. Beware the ticking time bombs of our societal preferences. 
What's the most important thing we can do among all the things that we may have to do to keep America from failing? Well, Diamond says, you forget about one thing. There isn't one thing. You have to solve all the problems. People often ask me, Jared, what's the most important thing that we need to do about the world's environmental problems? And my answer is the most important thing we need to do is to forget about there being any single thing that is the most important thing we need to do. Instead, there are a dozen things, any one of which could do us in, and we've got to get them all right. Because if we solve 11, we fail to solve the 12th, we're in trouble. For example, if we solve our problems of water and soil and population, but don't solve our pro problems of toxics, then we are in trouble. That's our challenge when we win this election. This means our governmental organs have to change and respond more flexibly. There are a couple of problems that affect our court system and our prison population. These are, if you will, uh, special cases from the virus. Uh, these are firmly in my wheelhouse as a trial lawyer, former prosecutor, and so forth. But the issues spill over into other areas, and I think it's worth taking a look at them. Stay tuned. <laughs> We're all familiar with and talked about the virus in nursing homes, assisted living facilities, uh, on cruises, indoor restaurants, but not so much about our court system or our jails and prisons. We have to consider these venues and more if we intend to keep our citizens safe and healthy rather than infected, suffering, or dead. If we place any value on these systems, so that they may command the trust of the population, of our citizens. There's a strong push to figure out a way to conduct court business, just like other business, to move those in custody awaiting trial or those in prisons. But the courts, the jails, the prisons are all at risk, pretty much for the same reasons that nursing homes or restaurants are at risk. The peril of a court proceeding is aggravated by the current surge of the pandemic across the nation without exception, every state. The cooling of the weather, the simultaneous threat of the flu season, and that we are talking about gathering a crowd indoors where this airborne disease spreads the easiest and has proven to be the most deadly. How can we put ourselves and our families at risk or the accused, not to mention the witnesses we expect to summon to consider the pretrial motions and the trial? And in the latter case, we have the jurors, observers, and court officers, including the presiding judge. What kind of a system is that? Can that possibly be safe? The only testing proposed for these court appearances for the virus, however, is taking the temperature of attendance at a court proceeding. And that's no fail-safe mechanism since asymptomatic carriers won't have a temperature. And not all courts even do this. I know of no court that is virus testing anyone in the courtroom, not by the swabs that actually do test for the virus, namely COVID screening of any sort. One device used that is supposedly to make court proceedings safe is to ask jurors to answer questions. Their medical privacy aside, some of the questions ask for intimate medical information that could have adverse effects on the jurors in their employment or reputations, or they just don't want to tell anybody. It's great to have HIPAA pro protections, but to serve on a jury, you have to disclose the same medical information that supposedly HIPAA protects your medical records from. 
the courts will rely on this information, but there's no vetting of the information. So how do we know it's true? If the information is embarrassing, isn't it equally possible that a juror will protect himself by not disclosing the information? Of course, if they want to off the jury, they may say they had contact with somebody who had the virus. We're still getting mixed reports on how long a surface may present a chance of infection, even with a cleaning. What's a juror to do sitting in a seat or passing up a handrail or opening uh, a door to the courtroom? Doorknobs, tables, computer screens, whatever, all present risks. Maybe the worst is that this is an airborne disease. And so the most dangerous place to gather for any purpose is indoors. And that includes a heated courtroom, just like the risk presented to patrons who choose to dine indoors at a small restaurant. The nation has suffered the highest daily virus case count in the last several weeks. It's now about 9.2 million infections, and 230,000 are dead from this virus, according to John Hopkins. 84,000 persons were infected yesterday on Saturday. I'm speaking to you on Sunday. And 848 persons died yesterday, Saturday. Both the CDC and FEMA encourage opening if there has been a 14-day decline in COVID cases, but that's not the case in America, not in these many courts, not anywhere. Scheduling trials is the equivalent in the context of court proceedings of opening up, if you will. But how can businesses open up? How can courts open up? How can anybody open up with these kinds of numbers in the pandemic? Given the nature of the disease and the manner of transmission, court proceedings, especially jury trials, present a grave risk to all participants, including the public, which has a fundamental right to attend. There are also significant and unacceptable constitutional burdens on the accused that accompany criminal proceedings, live or virtual, in the midst of this uncontrolled pandemic, including the right to counsel, the right to confront witnesses, the right to due process, and the right to a public trial by a jury representing a fair cross-section of the community. There is also the constitutional requirement that juries represent that fair cross-section, and how is that possible? The ability of an accused person to secure an impartial jury gleaned from a fair cross-section of the community during the pandemic is sharply curtailed. Vulnerable subsets are particularly likely to be underrepresented in jury pools. These include elderly persons, immunocompromised persons, and most troubling are the racial and ethnic minorities that are excluded. Processes that require masks have the effect of denying counsel the opportunity to judge the nonverbal cues and communications of jurors and of anyone else wearing a mask. One federal prosecutor during this COVID-19 era said the accused cannot simultaneously assert all of their rights because those rights are in conflict with one another. In other words, the accused must conduct a triage he argued, decide whether to prioritize a speedy trial, a trial by jury, or a trial in which the witnesses are physically present, etc. Why, why should there be any compromise? No matter that all of these rights are guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment, which states that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury and to be confronted with the witnesses against him. This is just one dilemma of our system in the pandemic. Another situation to consider when we're talking about social justice is what are we to do about inmates in prison? Stay tuned.
There is hardly a jurisdiction that has not had infections and deaths among those in prison and jail, those inmates, and these numbers accelerate by the day. Many states have released some inmates because the prisons and jail can't protect the inmates when they're packed together. So it's a way to increase distance, but from the results I observed, hardly enough distance. There are still two inmates in a cell made for one person. There is still a problem with circulation. There is still a problem with masks. There is still a problem with what you wear. The guards don't wear masks. Things are not swept and cleaned, and so people get sick and some die. As for those inmates who die, let's, let's underline the point that few criminal offenses that put these men and women in jail and prison justify a punishment of disease or death. That's not a sentence in America except for very few crimes is death a sentence, and disease is not in any courtroom in America. The Marshall Project tracked how many inmates were sickened and killed by COVID-19 in prisons and jails. And they did a state-by-state -state look. And in August, this is, there were at least 102,494 people in prison had tested positive for the disease, a 7% increase over the week before when that test was taken. The, the numbers have just continued to climb since. The basis of any attack on jail or prison custody given the virus is simply stated, when an inmate's health and life is at risk and he suffers for it, the deliberate indifference of the correctional system that has failed to provide the adequate and necessary medical care to protect the inmate from infection and death by COVID-19, that's cruel and unusual punishment. That's an Eighth Amendment violation. That is constitutionally forbidden, and yet it is happening every day in America in jails and prisons. These prisons and jails can't conform with the necessary strictures to protect the inmates, at these overcrowded prisons and jail. They can't do that given the stress, the tension, and the highly communicable and destructive disease that roams these cell blocks. The statewide strategy for prisons and jails is to limit somewhat those who may get sick or die, but at the same time accept the fact that they will get sick and they will die. If anyone wants proof the current system is hardly fail-safe, Consider the fact that the system, like the courtroom, has not been able to protect the inmates and staff who become infected already, nor to protect those who have died. The Constitution provides that a prison official violates the Eighth Amendment when the deprivation is objectively, sufficiently serious, posing a substantial risk, and the affliction is wanton and unnecessary, and the prison official has sufficiently culpable state of mind. But the prisons don't concede these points. They don't do what they should do, that is their job to protect the inmates. And the system is inclined to let these bad practices persist with lies that they are in place and they are working. So, I hope you found taking a, a short dive into our so-called system of justice, both in courts and in the prisons. But this is just one example of the many examples that are being tortured and compromised during the pandemic. You can imagine the many ways failing to adapt to the virus that were failing to preserve individual rights and liberties. In the many ways these matters may arise, the most frequent offense is failing to treat people equally.
We have an elite that live and act in the short term to their own advantage, insulated from the damaging consequences of their actions to others. When they, what they should be planning is in the long term to benefit all the people, but in the short term, they only take care of themselves. It's a good example of the unequal protection of the law. Stay tuned. One of my heroes remains William O. Douglas, an associate justice of the Supreme Court. I only wish I had the chance to serve as his law clerk. He did tell me that he only, only appointed clerks from the state of Washington, and I'm from New York, because he said persons from the East Coast have an advantage in clerkships, and he wanted to even it out. I told him I could say I could move to Washington. Uh, that went silently by. And, and why did I think of him as a hero? Because he was so strong in the area of individual rights and liberties. He was industrious in finding ways to protect the rights of individuals. So I thought of him as a hero, and many others did too. And he was also strong off the court, caring deeply about the environment. So I think it's worthwhile to hear something about what Justice Douglas thought back in 1964, what he had to say about equal protection under the law. You know, we say no man is above the law. That's an example of equal protection. That there's an elite that does one thing for themselves and not for others, that's equal protection of the law. But listen to the way Justice Douglas explains it going back a few years ago. The most important slogan heard around the world today in the context of continental problems, it is the most highly personal of all issues and the most emotional one. For the ego is involved in every protest against inequality before the law. When the Chinese fill Tibet with three Chinese to one Tibetan, Tibetans become second class. Eastern Europe, occupied by Russian forces, also becomes second class. The Taiwanese, became second class when the Komentong fastened its hold on Formosa. Apartheid has made Negroes in South Africa beggars for coexistence. The examples were multiplied under colonialism and they appear where our community becomes aligned against a minority as Thais often do against Chinese or as the whites in some of our communities do as respects the Negroes. The law has, from time immemorial, laid an uneven hand on racial, religious, and ideological minorities, which led Anatole France to say with some sarcasm, the law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. The present struggle for equality before the law is certainly a critical one, for without political equality, no society long remains viable. Without that political equality, seeds of ultimate disintegration are planted within the body politic and the society is atomized into antagonistic groups, as in Cyprus today, rather than integrated into a harmonious whole. Hence, enforcing the command of the 14th Amendment that no state shall deny any person the equal protection of the laws is our manifest destiny. Yet, Preserve at a different level, inequality among men is, I hope, also part of our manifest destiny. For without a society that encourages diversities among men, while at the same time demanding that government treats, treat each alike, the status quo will try to make people fungible, march goose step to some tune, and become mere statistical data.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. Hope you found it interesting. Uh, vote on Tuesday if you haven't. I assume you have. Get somebody else to vote if you haven't. Uh, call somebody and spend a few dollars because it may be spent counting the ballots afterwards. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't. Be careful out there. Until next Sunday, all the best. Look forward to talking to you. Bye-bye. On the boats and on the planes They're coming to America Never looking back again They're coming to America Home Don't it seem so far away We're traveling light today In the eye of the storm In the eye of the Home To a new and a shiny place Make our bed and we'll say our grace Freedom's light burning warm Freedom's light burning warm